Thanks. If you can keep your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, turn to that passage. You can keep keep your uh, fingers there. We're going to land that there at the very end. We're in a series um, that we've call, we're calling One Word, and the whole reason we're calling it One Word is because we're looking throughout uh, the whole Bible and trying to summarize it into themes that we see, not just in the individual books between Genesis and Revelation. There's 66 books with unique personalities and, and, and penmanship going through there. Those are amazing, but we want to see the, the narratives that are from Genesis to the end of Revelation and see these as key ways for us to understand the whole book, that, that if, we, if we could if we could boil the scriptures down to one of these words, that might help us as a filter to go through and understand some of the more precarious or difficult aspects of scripture. Um, the first week we, we did this, we jumped into studying how we see Jesus from the beginning of scripture to the end, that all Colossians says all creation was created by him and was created for him. And we see Jesus showing up not just in the New Testament, but all the way through. We, uh, last week we jumped into talking about how we see the concept of peace, and not just an anti-conflict, anti-warfare um, uh, type of concept of peace, but a deeper peace than that, which is shalom. And so uh, we, we went through that whole thing. This week we're, we're honing in on the concept of homecoming. And homecoming being this word um, that we see not only in scripture, but we see in every Every aspect of art, every aspect of history and art and, and philosophy that has ever been surfaced has, has honed in on this concept of Zainzukt, this, this, um, this longing, this homesickness that every epoch and era of people have experienced. Um, you have Karl Marx, Karl Marx, who said that we, everyone feels this homesickness and they feel alienated economically. And you have Sigmund Freud who's talking about how everyone feels this homesickness and this alienation psychologically. And you have Kurt Cobain of Nirvana who in All Apologies writes how all, he ends the song with saying over and over again, all alone is all we are. All alone is all we are. And scripture says to Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud and Kurt Cobain, you are right. You're absolutely right. There is this homesickness, but there's also a reason Throughout scripture, we see this concept of homecoming surface, and, and maybe more accurately, exile and homecoming. We see the reason um, that we're, at, we're coming home, and that is because exile has taken place. And we see this all the way back to the beginning of scripture. If you go right back to the beginning of Genesis, the very first homecoming takes place when humanity themselves comes into creation, into the garden. And this is into the garden. This is mankind. They didn't have a previous home. They weren't previously exiled. They didn't, they, they didn't come from a place before. They came out of nothing. They came out of the creativity and the imagination of the creator. And into the garden they came and things were sweet. They had a perfect home with God, a perfect home with each other, and a perfect home with the natural world around them. Things were right. And the thing is, is that God created this home to only work when when we were completely surrendered to him. When, When humanity and nature was surrendered to God, this world worked. But there came a point where we declared our independence and we said, I don't want to be completely surrendered to you. I don't want to be uh, submitted to, to your will. I, I want my will to, to be the thing that trumps your will. And so in that situation, the first taste of exile, exile takes place, and mankind is ushered out of the garden. In effect, God's saying, listen, I've created this home for you. I'm not going to force you to stay here. If you want out of this situation, this environment, if you want the independence, I will give it to you. And exile is God giving us 
what some would look at as straight up wrath, but in all reality is justice. And God, God generously giving us exactly what we ask for, independence from him. And that independence comes at a cost. The purpose and work that, that humanity experienced, that Adam and Eve experienced prior to the fall, is traded for pain in work. See, before, there was work in, in the Garden of Eden, but it was purposeful, and it was like, it was fulfilling. It was, a, it was in that situation, I don't know if you've ever worked in a, in a job where you felt like it was just a perfect fit. Great people you were working with, great job, great pay. Maybe you never experienced that. But, but the reality is that some people are like, oh, this is amazing. That, that concept of fitting is, is just a fraction of what Adam and Eve are experiencing in the garden. This was a perfect place of work, and we've traded it for pain and toil work. And not only that, but now relationships have been introduced uh, into conflict and competition with one another. No longer are relationships just this home. We are a good fit period. But now husband and wife relationships have this, this competition and this, this tension. If, if, you, if you're married or you've been married, you understand this. I'm doing like, this year there's tons of weddings going on at NBC and around NBC. There's people that I, I'm counseling uh, that I'm doing weddings for. There's like eight weddings that I'm doing this year, which is way too many. But the good thing about it is I get a chance to sit with these people and talk with them. And most people, not all of not all people, but most people that I'm talking to, they have an incredible high idealistic expectation for their relationship. Our relationship is amazing, and it's going to get better when we get married. I mean, like, and, and I know that all you guys have issues with your marriage, but us, ding, 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 it's amazing. There's some magic here. We don't fight hardly ever, and when we do, it's not a big deal. But when we get married, even the fighting that we do as dating people will dissolve because we're going to be married. And as soon as they get married and they get blindsided by the reality of Marriage is, is life and just as difficult, if not more difficult than before. All of a sudden, they go, what happened? This, I, I, I was promised this happiness and like my marriage isn't making me happy. What's happened here? And they wonder where this started. Is it your issue? Is it your mom's issue? Whose issue is this? You wonder whose issue it is? That. That's the issue. All of a sudden, into relationships was introduced conflict and competition. The garden is gone. We're in exile now. We see that take place, but we see that out of the garden concept continue throughout the book of Genesis and and continue as a people are following God outside of the garden in the midst of battling sin and and this weird gravity away from God that people tend to have. But all of a sudden, God establishes a homecoming. And the homecoming he does is this. Outside of just this massive, just just buckshot of people, he chooses a tribe. And he chooses to to have an avenue for people to become a family. He gives them a homecoming of saying, you're not just this this blah group of people. I'm going to have a choice people. I'm going to choose a people, and it's going to be led by Abraham. God chooses a homeless tribe led by Abraham to be his model home to the world. He doesn't choose the most important, impressive, or powerful person. He chooses a guy, and he says, you're totally established in your country. I want you to leave your country, and I want you to become nomadic. Because anything great that's going to come from you, everyone is going to say it's not because he was established. They're going to see how bankrupt you were, but how through me all this was accomplished. You're going to become a great nation through me. And in Genesis 12, he promises Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless you. And it's not just that you're going to be all this, um, you're going to be crazy rich and crazy powerful and everyone's going to say, ah, the Hebrew people, they're amazing. I'm going to bless you so that you become the model home 
that every other nation around you gets a chance to have a front row seat to my grace, my generosity, and the good news that I am even impacting them. You're going to be the model home for that. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. You are going to be a family, and I'm choosing you. That's the first homecoming. And so they experience that, but all of a sudden, when we get into the book of Exodus, we realize that we have God's people, the Hebrew people, enslaved. Uh, they're, they're enslaved in a foreign country, and they're not at home. Um, they've gone from being uh, people that were influential in Egypt to being kind of the, the individuals within Egypt that Egypt wanted to curse and did. They enslaved them. They have systematic slavery going all the way through, generation upon generation. And eventually, we have um, God speaking in through a guy named Moses to liberate them, to say, no, this is not your home, but God has called you to a home, the home that he promised Abraham, I'm going to bring you to, and Moses helps establish a homecoming, and it's actually Joshua, Moses' protege, who actually brings them in, and brings them into this, um, this foreign land. Now, the crazy thing is this, Joshua and his people have to go into the promised land and fight for the land that was already theirs. And the people that they have to fight are, are, sometimes we can look, when we look at old te- the Old Testament, it looks like genocide. God's saying, going in and just massacre everything and everyone and just, you know, just go through like a buzzsaw through, through all these Canaanite villages and everything else. And that's, that's actually not historically accurate, not even biblically accurate. The biblical picture instead is God telling this minority group of people that are outgunned, outmanned, to go into a powerhouse of, of military Um, cities and to take on these military cities and take back the land that God had already promised them. Take back from a people that were incredibly toxic to one another and to to the entire world. And on top of that, God had given them 400 years, given them 400 years to turn to him. And for 400 years, they had rejected him. And so this was God's judgment of them coming into this town, uh, coming into these, these, these military um, outposts and taking them over. And again, it's not this, like, this awesome, powerful army coming through and just laying waste. God chooses to, again, use this minority group. It's, it's as if God had like, um, the second graders from Manuka Elementary School across the street. Uh, it, it was it, it, as if uh, the United States Army said, okay, we're going to go ahead and have the second graders from Manuka, the Manuka Elementary School kids, because they're pretty sharp. The second grade class, we're going to send them on over and have them battle ISIS. And the second graders win. That's, that's the equivalent of what we see here. This minority, outgunned, outnumbered group going against this powerhouse, this warhouse, and winning. And the reason that they won was because God was with them. God was protecting them. And again, God's thing with them was... I am your victory. I am your success. It is not built and based on your abilities and your strongholds. It's, it's a built on me. The home that you have in this new land is built and based on me. Whatever you do, do not fall into the same mistake the people that used to live here were in, which was to, to, to worship idols and, and to continue to turn to other gods. I am the only God. This is how this home will work. And just like in the Garden of Eden, Mankind choose to say, I understand how you're saying home should work, but I'm still going to operate as if I am ruling this home. And what ends up happening is throughout all the prophets, we see the prophets um, proclaiming that if this continues, that, that God was actually going to bring the independence they asked for through the course of his wrath 
and justice by outside countries coming in. Um, you've got Hosea in the northern kingdom. The, the, the people were so uh, messed up that they, they ceased to be a, a country that was following God alone. They start following a king, and then they start battling over that over time. And then they break into two different countries, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom has all these prophets saying, turn back to God, turn away from idolatry, don't do this. You're doing the same thing the Canaanites did. You're, you're, doing, you're making the same mistake, and this is not going to work in this environment. It's going to be just like Eden. We are not going to be able to occupy this land and, and thrive in it the way God designed us to if we keep doing this. And Hosea says, from God's lips to them, listen, you have spoken with your life that you are not God's people. And so God is going to let you know, okay, you've got it. You are no longer my people. You will not be my people. You will not be my chosen people. You will be distant. For the southern kingdom, we see Jeremiah saying, As you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. Promise. You could look at it as a promise or a threat, but it keeps coming back over and over again from God. If you continue occupying, living in such a way that you're declaring your independence from me, I will eventually give it to you, and I will step back. And the people that I've been protecting you from, they're going to come in and take you out. And they did. The northern kingdom is taken out in 722 BC. Actually, the first deportations start taking place uh, 20 years before that. Uh, But it was in 722 that the northern kingdom finally just crumbled underneath the Assyrian, the Persian um, empire. The southern kingdom, which was a little bit more in tune with God, but still fallen into idolatry, they they fell um, much later in 586 BC. And in the midst of all of this, we have Jeremiah. Before 722, before uh, the northern kingdom fell, or pardon me, before the southern kingdom falls, we have Jeremiah making this promise, and, and you've heard this verse. You, just, you probably have heard it wrong. The verse is, For I know what I've planned for you, says the Lord. I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you. I have plans to give you a, fu- a future filled with hope. And we interpret this in a lot of different ways. Like, um, Ted, I have, I, have, I have a plan for you. I, I, I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And Ted goes, oh, I know what that means. God's going to give me a promotion. Woo, I love Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm writing this everywhere. Um, you know, um, Cynthia. Cynthia's having serious uh, marital issues. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plan. I know what I've planned for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to prosper me and not to harm me. God wants this relationship to work out, so it's going to totally work out. From here on out, Jeremiah 20, 11 is going to happen, and we're going to have, like, epic relationship from here on out. I'm going to get a tattoo with this on, because this is, this is, this is truth. And Jeremiah 29, 11 is not saying, how is your life going? What do you want? God's going to give it to you, because he wants to prosper you and not to harm you. That's not the context of Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah 29, 11 sits on an entire book proclaiming the judgment and wrath of God. We have wronged God. We have distanced ourselves from God. We're so far from him. And we're going to be taken out of the country, out of the security that we have. That's going to be our reality. We are going to be living in exile. But, Jeremiah 29, 11, that's not the end of the story. The wrath of God is just, but it's not the end of the story. That God works in addition to the wrath to find ways to bring his kids back home. The end of the story is that he's got plans not to harm them, plans not to end them, but plans to give them a future. And that future is that they're going to ultimately have a homecoming. 
Exile's not the end of the story. Their homecoming, we find in Ezra and in Nehemiah, 50 years after the southern uh, kingdom falls, the, the um, empire gets taken over by a new leader, and the new leader says, yeah, all you Jewish people, you guys can go ahead and go back home. Go for it. And so 50 years after that, that second kingdom uh, fell, they start to migrate back into the land and see the destruction. They start to rebuild. Eventually, we get the walls rebuilt, and eventually, they not only are returning, coming back home to a place, they are coming back home to a place, but they're coming back home to a place and a book and, and in the dedication of, this, of the, the new uh, city walls, you have Ezra standing before them reading the law, reading the law of Moses. And everyone's standing as he's reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And, and as they're reading this, people have a response. And the response is that they start to weep. They start to have the ugly cries over what they're hearing. Because as they're hearing the law, the book, the book of God, they're, they're realizing how far they've come away from God, how much they have forgotten. And Ezra and the priests remind them, don't, don't, don't cry. Your, your guilt is rightly placed, but we have a celebration today. It is a holy day. We're going to celebrate Sukkot, the festival of booths. We're going to start celebrating right now. And that, that celebration is a reminder that when we were wandering in the wilderness, God protected us and gave us a home And right here in Jerusalem, he's restored that. We are back home, and he is our protector. The Old Testament ends with that reality. God is our protector. And from that moment on, throughout the rest of the Bible, the concept of exile is inverted. Exile always was this concept of the wrath of God, the justice of God, inflicted upon people who deserved it, who, who had it coming to them. But the New Testament does something weird with this concept of exile. Because no longer do we see people walking into the exile. We see instead Jesus, God's one and only son, entering into the exile to make us a home. We see someone who is not deserving of the wrath of God, the justice of God against him, the, the, the punishment of God, choosing to take on the punishment and the wrath. We see someone who, who does not deserve the rejection, does not deserve rejection because he is perfect. Instead, we see him walking throughout the whole of his life constantly being rejected by people. We see him um, stepping into the exile of walking into a human body. The exile of having limitations. He is God without any limitations, and he willfully takes on limitations like being born as a baby, going through that process, going through the process of having to learn. God himself chose to be born as a man where we would have to learn how to speak, have to learn how to walk, how to balance. If they had a bicycle back then, he'd have to learn how to ride the bicycle. God, who created everything, photosynthesis, DNA, all of that, is choosing to put limitations upon himself as his exile. And he steps into that to the fullest degree when he gets punished on the cross for, for you and for me. And in the moment when he's screaming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing the exile from the favor and the fellowship of the Father. Everyone in this room, I'm willing to guess, has had a moment where you've come to the point of tears, where you've been crushed by by reality. Life itself has crushed you. The disappointment, the shame, the discouragement, the failure, whatever, all that, that, that feeling. And that cry that Jesus wails out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He screams out the agony of exile that we have, we have tasted in moments, but he experiences to the fullest. The relationship which had never been exiled between him and the father was now a reality he was experientially going through. This is the exile that we see the New Testament begin with. And the beauty is that this ugly, awful, unjust exile was the very thing that creates a home for us. See, because we, we move from that and we see that our homecoming is that we have a new relationship. That the, this relationship between us and God has shifted. It, it, it's changed. The relationship ha- has flipped. And, and you have people like Paul who've woken up to this, starting to quote the Old Testament prophets who said things like, okay, you don't want to be the people of God? Fine, God will give it to you. But he quotes the whole passage of what Hosea says. As, this is Paul's in Romans chapter 9. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my beloved who is not my beloved. And it will happen in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called the sons of the living God. Hosea's got this, this crazy thing. We've chosen to divorce God. And God has given us that. But God is ultimately going to restore the relationship. We've chosen to distance ourselves from God in our sin. But it is God who pursues us and brings us back home. Out of the exile, he consistently is making the homecoming, and he pronounces that with an exclamation point in what Jesus did. A new relationship had begun. And Jesus was totally honest with them about the fact that just because you have this new relationship, your, your sin is gone, you have a home with God now that's eternal, it doesn't mean that life is going to get easier in this world. In fact, because of me, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world that's going to be giving you the trouble. But you are going to go through a, a degree of an exile because you're going to be going from the comfort of the relationships you had before to this new kind of persecution. You got comfort with your parents, with your kids. Because of me, things are going to get awkward. You, you have comfort in the type of decisions that you used to make. But because of me, that's going to get complicated. There's going to be a new kind of persecution where you feel out of place. You're going to feel that exile, but you have a home. And that home is that you've got a new family, and it's a bigger family than before. Because again, God back with Abraham said, I'm going to call this one lone tribe as my my model home for the entire world to see. All of these nations, all of these people, all these races are going to get a chance to see my, my grace, my gospel, who I am, the good news of who I am. And by the time we get to the New Testament, Jesus says, now take this message to the entire world. And right when the book of Acts starts, we see that happening, where all these different kinds of races and all these different kinds of backgrounds, the people that, that were far from God who are deep, deep in paganism, all of a sudden are turning to Jesus as the way, as God, as Yahweh, as the one true God. And the family is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they're blowing off the sides of the house because the family is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we see Paul who was pretty bigoted before, all of a sudden saying in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is a unity in this family. And this world is going to give you major issues. Your, your biological family may give you major issues, but realize that you are part of a family that is greater than that. And this family started to meet. And when they met, there were some, some key components to their meetings. They, they, they saw people believe for the very first time and, and get baptized, proclaiming their connection to Jesus. And last night, at last night's service, there was a couple of people who put their faith in Jesus for the very first time. And because and that, that's what happens when God's people gather together. That happens. We have 
focusing on Scripture, recognizing that Scripture communicates to us who God is and his expectations and his call for us and the amazing reality of what Jesus has done. You see people in this early church praying for one another, praying to God for each other, providing for one another's needs, serving each other, serving those outside of the church, finding people who are widows, whose families are not stepping up to the plate, and, and, and saying, we will be your family. Finding orphans who no one wants to claim because they don't want the financial responsibility, and it's probably your own fault for putting yourself in this situation, and saying, no, we're going to be your family, and we're going to be the support net underneath you. And you see them, and it wouldn't be a family without this, you see them gathering around the table. And this group of people gather around a table, and the table that they gather around is called the Lord's Table, or the Lord's Supper, or communion. It's the time where they they don't do this in isolation. They don't take um, wine and and bread and go off into a field and say, just do some time alone with God. They gather together. And when they gather together, they they take this bread, and they remember that it was Jesus' body, not my body, that's paid for my wrong. It was Jesus' blood, not my blood, that's paid for my wrong. And that we are doing this together in community. Because the thing that unifies us isn't the way that we look. Isn't, the way, isn't our, our, our hobbies or our, our interests. It's not our perspectives. It's Jesus. He is the one who unites us. He's the one who brings us unity. This is a new family. And this is the, the cool thing about this is that you're experiencing this right now. See, because church is not something that, that was intended to be a place where we just show up and sit and listen and sing and go, but a place where we can actually start to build relationships with other people. That when we take communion, then we, then we come to the Lord's table, that, that, that's something that we're, we're recalling. We are unified by Jesus. We, we, are, we are brought together by his sacrifice for us, and we get a chance to experience that together. And as beautiful as that is, if the, if the New Testament would have ended there, that would be awesome. But the reality is that even as great as that is, we are not home yet. We are not home yet. And we are still experiencing some degree of exile where we see that we are still just outside of completion. We're just outside of God's c- completion that he wants to give the entire world. But that, that's what we see in Scripture also. We see the end of Scripture coming to the place where we see the homecoming, the final homecoming where God makes us a home, the final home. We see the whole trajectory of Scripture going from the first homecoming where we were with God, we had, we, had, we had a home with one another, and we had a home with the natural world around us, and we see that restored. We don't see this ethereal, like, uh, cartoon heaven where everyone's, like, floating around like fat little angel babies um, playing harps. We see heaven, the book of Revelation, talking about descending upon this earth and restoring it through fire. The old earth and all the destruction that came from sin is gone away. It's refined away and it's restored. And finally, in this state, in this place, all of a sudden we have what we had back in Eden. The culmination. Where we have this, this goodness with God. Where, 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 the, where we see responsibility and work. But it's not laborious work that takes away. It's, it's life-giving. Like what an amazing fit. What a creative outlet that I have here. What a perfect place I have with, with the Heavenly Father here. No death, no tears, no conflict. The prodigals, all the prodigals have finally come home. And things are finally restored. One of my favorite movies, it's a weird movie, but one of my favorite movies is, is uh, Tim Burton's Big Fish. 
don't know if you've ever seen it. But it's a weird um, movie about a guy who always tells all these stories about life, and, and, and everyone thinks he's lying, and he is. He's exaggerating all these different things. But it's, it's as he's laying in, in, on his deathbed, and, and he's coming to the end of his life, that all of a sudden, through his son retelling his life story, all those details of his life all of a sudden come into full picture. And, and I, every time I watch this movie, it, kill, it just is a punch in my throat every single time because the end of his life is him actually envisioning himself walking through all the details and all the stories of his life where now everything all of a sudden makes sense. And you see him ultimately just, you know, move on into the afterlife. I think that there's this, this amazing reality that when we get to our final home, that will be part of the, the, the truth. That all of the pain that all of the issues, that all of the loss and death and disease and difficulty that we've experienced wondering why all of a sudden in that moment we see all those details coming together into something where we're able to see how God has woven that into his glory and things make sense. And for eternity from that point on, no more tears, no more loss, just celebration. Celebrating what Jesus has accomplished for us. Homecoming. So what? So what? If, in fact, Scripture is about homecoming from the beginning to the end, what does that mean? Well, it means a couple amazing things, to be honest, and it changes everything. First off, one thing that it means is that we are able to allow the hope of our future home invade our current context. That we have this attitudinal uh, shift that, that where everything is different now. We're able to allow the hope of our future home invade our, the pain, the difficulty, and stress anxiety of our current context. And we're able to do this because this broken home is not my final home. Now, let me speak to that on two, on two levels. One, if things are really going bad, one thing that God inserts into your current context is reality. This is bad. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't pretend like it, you know, just paint it with a happy face. No, this aspect of your family life, this aspect of your vocational life, your personal life, it isn't right. It's, it's, it's out of place. But this is not the period at the end of the sentence. This is not the last word of God for you. That you have a future home, and it's going to be better than this current home. But let's just flip that around. Let's say everything is going amazing for you. Right now, you're experiencing the, the height of your success, individually, relationally, vocationally, whatever. You're, you're feeling pretty awesome. You also need to be reminded, this broken home, even as awesome as it is right now, is not your final home. We're not, we're not working to make this place all about us and how great we are and how accomplished we are. It's not your final home. One of the phenomenal aspects of Scripture that we see speak to this is in Hebrews 11, where Abraham, that guy who God chose to be the, the leader of this tribe, that was going to be his model home for the entire world to see, God's goodness. Uh, Hebrews 11 says this, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, and he went out without understanding where he was going. By faith he lived as a foreigner in the promised land, as though it were a foreign country, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, who were fellow heirs of the same promise. And then it goes through and it talks about all these people who stepped out, not knowing, they stepped away from home and away from comfort and security to follow God. And then it says this, these people all died in faith without receiving the things promised, but they saw them in the distance and they welcomed them and acknowledged that they were strangers and foreigners on this earth. Those who speak in such a way make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. 
In fact, they've been thinking, if they had been thinking about the land they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they aspire to a better land that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. As we're going through this life, there's elements that are so difficult that it feels like we're just dragging. In those moments, remember, this home is not our final home. There's going to be moments where we feel like, ah, finally I've arrived. In those moments, we need to be, have the resetted, reset perspective of that this is not our final home, but instead, we have an attitude of, we are going to be someplace that is better than this. Is our life revolving around the person who that world, that home is revolving around? Secondly, um, because of the whole scripture, we see the, the homecoming theme come through. We're also able to plant in our current home the qualities of our future home. We're actually able to invest in our current context in a way that actually shifts um, our current realities. This is the realization that I'm a dual citizen and I have a vital role in my current context. Okay, so, so and, and, and Jeremiah, the guy who was saying, listen, bad news is we're all going to be exiled. There's going to be another country, just like God said, is gonna, he, that's going to come in and take us over and take us out to foreign lands. But he doesn't just leave it there. In the same passage that he says, I've got a hope and a future for you, he says this. In Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7, he doesn't say, now in this land, this land that has taken you out and exiled you, this pagan land, just fold your arms and just go, man, this place has gone to hell in a handbasket. This is nowhere near as awesome as Israel was. Israel was a land focused on God. This land is so far from God, it isn't funny. I hate these pagans. I'm going to resist them. I'm going to stand against them. Bam, bam, bam. No, Jeremiah says, you're going to be in exile. And when you're in exile, plant gardens. Marry. Be a blessing to your oppressors. Make your, your town better. This isn't my town. This is my exile. Right, you're exiled. Make your exile town better. Be a blessing to them. We plant in our current home, the exile of our life right now, between now and when Jesus returns, we plant in our current home the qualities of our future home. We're planting the seeds of those. Let me just give you a, a very, very pertinent and um, current example. Watching news this past week has been one of the most difficult things for myself. It's been heartbreaking. And, and to be honest, it's been scary and sad. And people say things that just break my heart. And, and they're coming out of opposite ends of, of, of the argument. One of the things that we can do as people is this. As people of, of the future home that has been established by Jesus, we can actually do this. We can say, okay, so right now, one, all the th what people are talking about is, is racism. And whether it's racism or classism or sexism, um, whether it's systematic, you know, you know systemic through, through, through an entire organization, or it's just something that you adopted because grandpa did it and you do it and that's it. The truth is that every single human being, all of us, have this tendency to find ways to be superior to others. You look at this when in elementary school kids, and whether it's a race-based thing, or it's, it's a clothes-based thing, or it's a where-you-live-in-town-based thing, or whether you're athletic or aerial-based thing, whatever. All these different things that we have ways of making ourselves superior to other people, we do this. 
And we see it on, on, on massively violent levels, and we see it in its infancy from little kids all the way on up. And so people, people of the future home, have an opportunity to look into that and say, I see our tendency to do this, and I'm able to see this, whether it's, again, systemic. It is systemic. It's in human nature. It's in through all, 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 of, all of humanity. We do this. I'm able to say, as a follower of Jesus, no, no. No, I, I, don't, I don't do that. In fact, not only do I not do that, I find ways through the, my influence and my, my speech and my, my, the, my work and my home to f- combat that. Why? Because I'm a crusader for good? No, because I'm a person of the future home, and I know what my future home is described as. It's a place where there's neither Jew nor Greek or slave nor free, male nor female, that all these classifications that people utilize to make themselves feel superior, that's gone because of Jesus. And because of that, I could be an agent of recognizing that my family is so big, it includes people from all of those different divisions. And, and, and I love that. We can actually step in and do something. And if you don't believe me on this, uh, believe, believe Alton. I, I was, last night after the service, I was going through um, Instagram, and I, I came up with this, uh, I saw this. And I, it kind of like I, I drew my attention to it. This is Alton right here. He, he's from Redding, California. Um, he's a music producer, and, uh, and he's a believer. And uh, this is what he wrote on his Instagram. He said, As an African American in a time like this, I have every reason to fear the law enforcement, but I don't. Instead, I have a lot of love for the police because they are two people, and I am aware that not all officers are bad or have ill intentions towards citizens or particularly black citizens. While praying today, I felt led to go down and bless our local law enforcement officers here in Redding, California, with words of kindness, appreciation, affirmation, hope, and to hopefully begin a dialogue on how we break down the barriers of trust issues between law enforcement and citizens, create a space where we can have honest, raw, and real conversations about what, what are the pressing issues, ask tough questions, and find practical solutions and wisdom on how we can further the cause of, for unity in our city, our city. Pictured here is Officer Matt. He's the first officer I saw in the hallway at the police headquarters. After speaking words of kindness and hope over him, expressing value and appreciation for his life and for him as an officer with the local police department, he replies, you have no clue how much your words mean. Far more than you actually know. I told him that as an African-American man, I don't fear him or hate him, but that I love him and I appreciate what he's doing and I, I know that all cops aren't bad. I told him that, I don't, that I, hate won't fix hate and he agreed. He goes on to meet with the head of the police in the, in the department and he continues on. He says, I understand it won't always feel comfortable, and I understand everyone will not agree with me. I'm not here to bend to more division. I'm here to bend towards change. I'm here to lean into reconciliation. I'm here to lean into furthering a unity in our churches, in our cities, in our nation, and in our world. With, with the grace of God, the wisdom of heaven, and the willingness to serve and love each other, we can do this. I'm not saying it'll be easy and that, that we aren't going to feel the frustration of things, but we have an opportunity in this moment to further hate or lean into love and embrace. It looks different in a variety of contexts, but let's aim to navigate it and bear with each other through the process when conversations are harder. Lastly, I took this photo not for brownie points, but because I wanted to put a different image into our news feeds. Keep praying, loving, hoping, and believing, strategizing, and lending your hearts, hands, and ears to one another. You don't need a large platform. Just start with your neighbor, start with your family, start at home, start in your schools, start in your, start in your local grocery stores, start in your church, start with you. The thing I love about that is this is my brother right here. This is a, a believer 
And he's got every reason to say something different. And he chooses not. What about you? How are we individually stepping in and seeing the seeds of the brokenness and saying, no. For you, it may be completely different. Um, it, may be, it may look more like the reality that uh, you, you're seeing unforgiveness and lack of grace in your family. The brokenness between spouses or between parents and kids or between you and coworkers. And you could say, you know what? They have done this and this and this. And I am justified to respond with the same type of angst. But because of your future home, which is defined by peace, forgiveness, and the gospel, you respond differently by planting a seed, not of what you feel like right now, not what of even is what is warranted and justified right now, but you're planting a seed that echoes with that reality now of forgiveness, bringing forgiveness where it's not, it's not warranted, bringing love and generosity and grace where it's not given. That's that world coming in and invading your world. You're planting seeds for that future world. And the fact of our future home, it gives us both the motivation and the model to affect real change. You start living like this, and it will change your world. And if Christians start living like this, I believe it will change the world. Lastly, because of what we see as homecoming throughout Scripture, we're able to celebrate every single prodigal who comes home. Every single prodigal who comes home. Because this church is filled with a bunch of people who people had given up on. That people have said, nope, this person is too far gone. This person has done too much wrong. This person has too much shame, too much guilt. And this church is chock full of people who all of a sudden Jesus met you and now you're here. And this isn't a rival. This is just that God is continuing to work in you. And we're gathering unified by the fact that we're broken people who've been made whole by Jesus. Amen? And so because of that, we celebrate every prodigal who comes home. We don't keep the gospel from family members or coworkers because we think that they're, they're too messed up or they're into too much sin. We recognize if he can change us and he can change some of the people that we sit next to at church, he can change them. And we celebrate this because the older brother who gave it all to bring us all back. Back to what Katie read, the, the, the prodigal son story. Let me just recap this very familiar story in this way. One of the things Jesus is doing is he's asking the questions, do you know who each one of the people, each one of the characters in this story are? To which we would say, well, yeah, okay. We're probably the prodigal who's run away from God, um, who's gotten deep into sin, and, and, and that has come back to the Father, who probably is the Heavenly Father, who, who didn't let us even finish our speech of how we were going to pay him back. He stops us, and he, and he blesses us by saying, no, you're, you're, you're back home. Your homecoming is here. You're, you're, you're one of the kids, and, and, and then throws a huge party for us. But we have a hard time with the older brother, because usually we, we want to say the older brother is like the more pharisaical Christians around us, which, you know, it's probably true. The more people are like, oh, no, not that person. But Jesus is doing something else in that passage. He's pointing out something. See, the older brother in that first century context would be the one who would be obligated to go and find the younger brother. And the older brother doesn't. The older brother would be the one who would have to go to find where this kid is and bring him back home. It's not the the father. It would be the son. And he would bring him back at whatever cost it would take. But he doesn't. This older brother says, this kid took his share in the inheritance. I only have what my dad and I have left. This is all that we have. And then this kid comes back after doing all that to the father. And dad takes some of my cash and throws a party for him. He takes some of my inheritance, all that we have left, and throws him this lavish party. 
at cost to me? And Jesus is saying this. There is a homecoming. And you are the prodigal. And there's a better older brother. And the better older brother went to find you in your mud slop and your sin. And he brought you back home at the greatest cost of himself. He gave himself to bring you home. When we celebrate the cross, that's what we're celebrating. The better older brother, Jesus Christ, who brought us back, and now we are joint heirs with of the kingdom. We're home. If you're in Jesus, in the midst of the exile of this world, you are home. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as wonderful as that sounds, it's very easy for us not to experientially feel that. Um, It's very easy for us instead to feel the distracting pain of loss, the distracting pain of our own failures and our own shame and our own guilt. But God, when we regather together, we're reminded of the fact that you've brought us into a home. And as we're walking through the exile of this world, the pain and the brokenness of this, of this country, the pain and the brokenness of this, of this time, that we are not hopeless because we know that you're going to bring a home to restore this place. And in the meantime, you've already made a home within our heart. That we can walk with the peace and the reality and the hope of the home that you've established with us. A bunch of prodigals who you've brought back home. We give you thanks for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.